Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 41. Thanks for listening to some or all of the other 40 episodes, and thanks for telling your friends about the podcast. Our mission at Human Workplace is to reinvent work for people, and so this podcast is part part of that mission, talking about how to make work more functional, more human, more vibrant, more effective for everybody, for employees, of course, for job seekers, for leaders, for shareholders, for customers. I think we deserve that. And it's time we talk about it really straightforwardly and in detail, how to fix what's broken about work and how to get stronger ourselves personally, find our voices and use them. Step into our power. I got a ton of questions to answer for you today in episode 41. And the first one comes from a conversation that I had earlier this week with a group of folks who are job hunting right now. And somebody made such an interesting observation. I wanted to share it with you guys on the podcast. They said, you know, you can tell when a company is interested in you from the beginning, from the first interaction that you have with them, because, you know, they get a little bit excited hearing about your background and then they accelerate the process. So, you know, presumably a bunch of other people that did not sound like as close a fit to the spec, you know, may fall by the wayside, which is really annoying. They just don't contact you anymore after they get your resume or after the first interview or after the second interview. But a person that they really are interested in is going to know they're interested because they stay on you. And so and so the story is that, you know, this person applied for a job, recruiter called them third party, independent recruiter called. They had a good talk. Resume shipped off to the client, the employer. They're interested. So phone screen with the employer's recruiter, the internal recruiter. That went well. And then the very next day is a request. Hey, can you meet the manager, the department manager right away? Okay. Meet the department manager by Zoom. That went well. Next day, hey, Can you meet the director? Can you meet the director first thing tomorrow morning? So, you know, the observation this person shared was it's not any better to be pushed, hounded really, to meet the next person and meet the next person and stay in this process and we want to fill this job and you might be the right person. That is not more flattering. That is not more respectful of who I am or my needs than just being ghosted. In other words, they both come from the same place, being ghosted as a person that is not deemed to fit the spec and being pursued. Can you meet us tomorrow morning at 10 a.m.? How about Thursday at 2 p.m.? Can you also meet this person? Can you clear your schedule for this? They both come from the same place, which is a place of power. We want you. So that's it. That's the beginning and end of the conversation. We want to talk to you. Aren't you thrilled? Aren't you flattered? No, not necessarily. Not if my feelings and my needs are not equally important. And so this is my message to recruiting managers and recruiters and HR folks and leaders and and, and hiring managers is it's not, the brass ring is not that I get the job. And I think all of us on both sides of the recruiting desk have been brainwashed to think that every candidate believes that the brass ring is to get the job. It's not. Might not be the right job. Ask me. Ask me what time works for me. Don't call me and say, how about 10 o'clock tomorrow? I had no idea you were going to call. 
I had no idea you were going to start putting demands on my schedule. If you want me, sell me. Listen to me. Ask me what's important to me. And this is what gets dropped out of recruiting all the time. So we know it's obnoxious, rude and unprofessional, unethical, etc. to ghost a candidate. That also happens all the time. To drop somebody off by the roadside and that's it. They never hear from you again. That's shameful. But it's just as bad, practically just as bad. To treat the candidate like they have nothing to say about anything, your next interview will be tomorrow at 2 p.m. And then the one after that, if that goes well, will be Saturday, you know, at 10. What? What? Why am I in a conveyor belt? I did not sign up to be in a conveyor belt. Does that make sense? We are selling, you guys. Recruiting is selling all the way through. I mean, people think it's quaint when I tell them that I would say to a candidate we were potentially interested in hiring. What else do you need from us at this stage? What else do you need? And sometimes they would say, you know what? I would love it if you could talk to my spouse who has questions. This might be a relo situation, moving cross country, right? To take the job, I'd say, I'd be delighted to talk to your spouse, of course. Anytime, here's my number, have them call me. Sure, you wanna talk about neighborhoods, schools? You know, my impressions of this area and you know what they're gonna find the same and what they're gonna find different and any help that we can give? Of course, of course, of course, you're trying to recruit people. That means who they are and what they need is the most important thing. And I think that gets lost a lot. We tend to think, oh, lucky you. You're the candidate we like. Okay, yeah, that and $3.50, I can get a cafe latte at Starbucks. It might be more than that now. It's probably $5. But yeah, we can't assume that it's just unbridled good news to be told you're having another interview. You know, ask. Have we answered all your questions? Does this seem like something you might be interested in? Do you have any reservations, concerns? How was your call with Stanley, the department managers, or anything you wish you would have asked that you didn't have a chance to ask, right? It's just like selling a customer. It's just the same. We come from a place of power and control when we say, oh, lucky you, we're going to check references. Lucky you, we're thinking about making an offer. That's when you get the rude awakening saying, no, I'm not sure I would accept an offer. I don't like the process so far. It's been very presumptuous, honestly. Like I should just snap too. You guys left me in radio silence land for two weeks and then I got an email that said your next interview was tomorrow at 10 a.m. What? No, I'm not free. I don't even know if I still want to talk to you guys. It's selling. You get that? That's magical. And there's a meta skill involved in recruiting, which is critical in every part of HR, in leadership, in job searching, all of these interpersonal things require this meta skill and they get stronger when we get better at the meta skill. What is it? We call it perspective taking, taking somebody else's perspective. This is obviously critical in selling, any kind of selling, including recruiting or selling your ideas upstream to your boss, or selling a program internally to the employees, to your teammates. If you're an HR person, right? If you're a manager, selling requires taking somebody else's perspective. If you're familiar with our pain letter methodology, which is taking the hiring manager's perspective, instead of pushing forward 
your credentials. Oh, I have this, I have that. How can they care? They can't care. They have no room to care. They're busy. They have pain. They have problems like all of us. You take their perspective. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that you're dealing with X, Y, and Z. Because a lot of the folks in your role that I've been talking to during my job search and just in my career, they say that they're dealing with this. Wasn't sure, thought you might also be. Pain spotting is a form of perspective taking. What is this person's life most like, most likely to be like, <laughs> right? What is their view of the world? Let me get inside their head. That is critical in selling and it's critical in job hunting and it's critical in recruiting too. What must this be like for them? What must this be like for the candidate? I want to make sure they're okay. I want to make sure they feel heard. That's it. I just wanted to share that observation from a job seeker who says, you know, don't think it's flattering for me to be your top candidate. It can feel oppressive. Like just move along now, move along down to the next station. No, you gotta, you gotta reinvite me and resell me at every step of the way. I have other opportunities. This is really important for us on the other side of the recruiting desk to hear and to keep in mind, be reminded of. All right, questions. I have questions for you to ask if you are job hunting. Questions for you to ask at a job interview that I grabbed here, wanted to share with you. Some questions that I would love for you to get the answers to before you get too far into the hiring process. So you probably can't rattle off these questions one right after the other, typically, unless they give you a lot of time in the interview, but you can get the answers over time, asking them in an interview, asking your hiring manager, asking the recruiter, asking other folks you meet, email. Some of these questions you're gonna probably get answered before you even interact with anyone at the employer, but it's really important to get answers to all of these questions, in my opinion. All right, number one, why is the position open right now? Is it a newly created role? And if so, what gave rise to that? What created the need for this new person? That's, that's a really important thing to know because sometimes new positions are created and it's, it's pretty shaky, it's pretty bogus. It doesn't even sound like a job, it sounds like a consulting engagement, which sucks for you if you take the job as a job in good faith, assuming the need will persist and then it doesn't. After six months, you did your initial project and they got no more work for you. You need to, you need to get that clear. Why is the job open? If there was somebody in the job, did they get promoted? Did they transfer? Did they leave the company? Have three people been in this job and left the company in the last year? You can also do a search on LinkedIn looking for folks in this role, in this company. And if there's a whole, you know, pile of roadkill, people that didn't stick, that's, there's all the information you need right there. All right. Number two, what are the most important metrics by which this person's performance in the role will be evaluated? You got to know that. Are they realistic? Are they germane? Number three, what constitutes a work day here? This question, people say, I'd be afraid. Now think about that. That is some serious indoctrination, you guys. Some serious brainwashing. If you cannot ask, what are the working hours? Weirdly, people feel comfortable if it's an hourly job. What are the working hours? But salary, no, I should just be available. Really? 
do that. Don't ask the question, get burned. You will ask the question henceforth. You got to know what constitutes a workday. It's beyond reasonable. Oh, you know, a lot of people log in at a, you know, from home or whatever at uh, around 8.30 and most people peel off by 5 or 5.30. You know, we don't schedule meetings after 5. You know, you might get the odd email at night unless it's urgent. You're probably going to leave it till tomorrow. You know, get the lay of the land in terms of their expectations around working hours as well as reachability after hours. Varies from place to place. You got to know. You deserve to know before you take a job. Number four, what are your expectations for this person's first 90 and 180 days on the job? What's the wish list look like? The things that you would love to see handled or resolved or enacted or right pushed forward? You gotta know. That's also good for your hiring manager. This is a question, of course, for your manager, your department manager, to see, is it a meaty assignment? Are you going to have fun in the job? Are you going to be able to use your brains and all your talents? You want to know. If they say, oh, I don't know, just, uh, you know, just file the invoices pretty much, you're going to say, okay. Number five, how do you guys handle performance evaluations and salary reviews? How do you handle it? That is not a pushy question. It's completely reasonable. We are in fear, you guys, as job seekers. We've been taught to be in fear mousy, like Oliver Twist at the poorhouse when he said, please, sir, may I have some more? More? You want more? Out on the street with you. This is what we're afraid of. We'll be rejected. Good, good. These old guys don't all deserve you. Only a subset of them are worthy of your time and talents. I know it's hard to keep that in mind when you're job hunting, if you need another job. And that's why I encourage you to job hunt when you don't need another job. Send out a resume. Talk to a recruiter who calls you if they have a story to tell, a good story to tell. I want you to job hunt when you don't need a job because if you don't do that, then every single job hunt will be a job hunt out of fear and desperation. I don't want that for you. I want you to know what it feels like to job hunt from a position of strength. That is a completely different experience than job hunting when you have to take the first job offer you get, right? I want you to get used to saying, eh, no, that doesn't really sound like something that would interest me. Really want you to feel that muscle getting bigger. So the next time you do need a job, you say, yes, I need a job, but I, I don't need this job. I need some job. All right, and the last one of our must-ask Job interview questions is, how will your new hire put their personal stamp on the job? What decisions do you hope for them to be able to make on their own? And which decisions will they need yours or somebody else's approval to make? That's another important question. This is another question people say, I'd be hesitant to ask. That's brainwashing. How am I going to have my individual stamp on the job? That is not a presumptuous or pushy question that is not forward it's saying what level of individual uh you know influence impact on the role do you expect this person to have some people will say what a great question i would love for you to just go nuts with the internal communication you're going to be doing in this internal communications role 
you know, present us with ideas. We'd love to brainstorm and talk about some really creative things. I'm so glad you asked the question versus somebody who looks down their nose at you on the Zoom call or face-to-face, whatever it is, and says, what? Individual stamp? We don't know anything about that. Great. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. We are all growing our muscles together, you guys, and asking questions at a job interview the company can pass or fail is very important. It is not just a dog and pony show for you to show that you are worthy of them. They got to show they're worthy of you as well. Make sense? All right. Hi, Liz. I got an interesting interview question the other day. Wasn't sure how to answer. The recruiter said to me, how do we know you will stay in the role? I was stumped. Yeah, how do we know you will stay? Doesn't it sound like a 30s crooner type love song? How do I know you'll stay? <laughs> you might drift away. Wow. Now look it. Remember we talked a little bit ago about perspective taking? Taking the other person's perspective. Let's do that right now. They're asking, how do we know you'll stay? It's a ludicrous insane question. How do I know you'll stay? Wait a minute. I don't even have the offer yet. I myself couldn't promise you I'll stay. What if it's a hellhole? What? But let's take their perspective. Why would they ask? How do we know you'll stay? They like you. They even think you might be too much. You might be too good, too smart, too talented. You might not stay. You might not find them worthy. They are confessing themselves to you with that question. How do we know you'll stay? Wow. Imagine going on a date with someone and they say, oh, but how do I know you'll stay in the relationship? That's a back away slowly moment, right? Um, yeah, I... Couldn't really answer that one for you. Like, you don't want to date that person just by virtue of the fact that they asked you, how do I know you'll stay in the relationship? Um, yeah, no, that's not how relationships work. You don't get a guarantee up front. You, you earn the other person's trust and companionship, just like I would be earning yours, except I won't because, unfortunately, you are so self-esteem challenged right now that you literally asked me on a first date, how do I know You'll stay in the relationship, which to me is a massive neon glowing red flag. And so I think this will also be our last date. I, I, I understand everybody has some damage, but that's just too much insecurity. I can't date somebody who says, how do I know you'll stay? I need somebody who is comfortable in their own skin, excited to meet me, excited to hear about my life. I'm excited to hear about yours. I'm not going to date somebody who tells me from the get-go that I'm way out of their league and they're afraid I'm going to leave. Does it make sense? Now, the weird thing is that anybody would have the nerve to ask you that question at a job interview. The only reason they do is because they've been brainwashed that being on the recruiting side, the hiring side of the desk, means they automatically have the power and they can ask you, prove to me that you'll stay. Yeah, no, I, I can't. that I can't do. That's a really scary question you just asked me. How do we know you'll stay? <laughs> I, I, you know, here's the thing, though. The cheek, the nerve to ask you to prove that you'll stay, all they need to do, first of all, make it a great experience for me, and I'll probably stay. Secondly, you want me to stay? Give me an employment contract that guarantees me employment 
for whatever length of time you want me to stay, a year, two years, guarantee my employment such that if you laid me off because you changed your mind, I'd get a big-ass check out of it, right? Like, you're asking me to prove my loyalty? How could I even be? I don't know anything about you guys. And you're scaring me off with your weirdo questions. How do I know you'll stay? What? So, yeah, the main thing about that question that you got at that interview last week, how do we know you'll stay, is it's a massive red flag. And I, you're probably not going to say, oh, give me an employment contract. That will freak them out. Their head will explode right in front of you. But you could say, um, why? Has that been a problem? Has turnover been an issue? I'm very curious you know, about the origin. You know, what gave rise to that question? And then, and then they may just faint. You know, That'd be interesting. If they faint on a Zoom call, what are you going to do? You can't run around the table and pick them up off the floor. Yeah, they'll probably be okay. All right. You know what? We should talk about forced arbitration. I want to uh, just discuss forced arbitration a little bit here in the podcast because we got a lot of questions about it, and it's one of these really pernicious things. It's starting to soften, starting to go away or be outlawed, but it's important for you to know about it because big companies, a lot of them, used forced arbitration. They won't make a big deal about it, but they will require you to sign something when you take the job that says, yes, I agree to be bound by forced arbitration. Talking about the U.S., United States of America here, where the labor laws are the worst in the industrialized world. And forced arbitration is a thing where certain large companies, I don't know, 15 years ago said, you know what, why do we have to follow labor laws? We're a huge company with 150,000 employees. Why do we have to fire U.S. labor laws? As lame as they are, they do create some exposure for us as a company. Let's have our employees sign a piece of paper that says we don't have to follow labor laws. If we do something that would be considered illegal in the United States because it's against the law, rather than allowing our employees to go get a lawyer and sue us, we're going to require them to go through a different process called arbitration where an arbitrator decides whether we did something wrong or not and how much we owe them, how much money we owe them as recompense if indeed we are found to do something wrong. And here's the catch. Guess who hires and pays the arbitrator? The company does. And not once or twice, but for every arbitration case they have. And they have a lot of them because they have a lot of employees. And they goof stuff up because all of their employees have agreed not to hold the company responsible for following U.S. employment laws. It sounds like science fiction, you guys, because it is. Now, slowly, but thankfully, forced arbitration is being challenged in court as well as it should have been since the beginning but you still may be here in 2020 and 2021 uh, asked to or required to sign a forced arbitration agreement. It's arbitration that's forced. You're not choosing it. You're being told if you have any employment dispute, sexual harassment, discrimination, pay violations, anything, wage and hour violations, anything at all that would be illegal in the real world. No, here it's just we go into a room and the guy that we pay that we, we put that extra wing on his house, being our arbitrator. It's very well-paid work, by the way. And he does all our work. Probably, you know, in a large company, it's not going to be one person. It'll be a whole team of them. And they're not going to turn off that spigot. And I have been involved in this process, and it's gross. 
they're working for the employer. So you need to know this because if you have an opportunity to walk away from a job offer that includes forced arbitration, I really want you to do it. Of course, if you don't, you don't. But maybe in that case, knowing that you're working for uh, an employer that really doesn't care about following employment laws or giving you a fair shake, getting the law upheld, you know, that you, you, you might start a job search sooner than you otherwise would. It's not a cool situation. It's not fair. It's not ethical. And with luck, forced arbitration will be illegal also before long. But I want to get that out there, tell the truth about what forced arbitration is. You know, you can read about it. If you're not familiar, that's what it is. It's literally giving your employer permission that you should be able to skirt the legal system. Ah, the legal system. It's a pain in the neck, you know. Get a lawyer and sue us. Maybe get a big check. Nah. We got this friendly arbitrator over here. Charlie, you know, we always go to Charlie. Charlie's going to take care of you. Right. That sounds good. Basically, what's the difference between saying, if we break the law, we're just going to take it up with our own legal department? which Charlie is an extension of. See what I'm saying? All right. So yeah, I've been telling you guys in the podcast just little drips and drabs about kind of my story and how this stuff came uh, to, to result in the human workplace message and mission and movement um, to reinvent work for people. And really, it starts with just me being interested in work, weirdly, as a topic. Seeing my dad go to work and then uh, when I was in fourth grade, my mom went back to work after taking, I think, about 15 years off to have kids, eight kids, me and my seven siblings. Uh, and then she went back to work when I was uh, 10 years old. And so that was another window into, well, what do you do at work, mom? What, 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 what's the story there? Noticing people at work and their jobs and their relationship to their job. But the big change since those days is that people used to have one job. They would have one job. That was it. They got a job. And, and, and the people that I knew, it was fairly unusual for them to change jobs. In fact, I never heard my father talk once about changing jobs, even in the abstract, the whole time I was growing up. He only changed jobs, took early retirement when I was about 24 to go do a completely different entrepreneurial thing with my mom. Other than that, it was pretty much the dads back then that went to work and they all had one job, one job. It was just, it was just an un, unspoken expectation. Now that corporate ladder is completely gone. We are going to, to be running our careers to a degree that you know most of us, our parents, grandparents never did. Maybe grandparents before the bubble. Because the bubble really started with the post-war boom, 1945, 1946. And then we get into, you know, Camelot in the 60s, corporate man, organization man. I do it the company way, you know. That's uh, how to succeed in business without really trying. But that was the mindset. I do it the company way. I'm here. And when I was coming up as an HR person in the 80s, it was, I work for Kraft. They just, you meet a person, they work for Kraft, General Foods, mac and cheese. They're proud of the brand. They're in there, in like Flint, and I work for Kraft, and they have no expectation of changing jobs until they retire. And that started fraying. That social contract, they call it, started fraying. Late 70s, into the 80s, Jack Welsh comes along. Slime. Don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but slime. Horrible damage inflicted on working people. And not just the people that worked for him, 
But 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 across the whole ecosystem, this is the way to lead. Get rid of the ten percent worst performers. Rank them, stack them. Screw you, Jack Welsh. Disgusting, horrible. This is what I'm fighting against. This is what I'm protesting. This idea that you can treat human beings like that. You hired these people. You hired them. You trained them. But then all of a sudden, under pressure, managers are forced to throw ten percent of people out of the lifeboat. Yeah, well, it's either you or me. It's like the mob. At least the mob was upfront about it. They didn't have a freaking mission statement on the wall saying here in the Gambino family of five families of New York, we uphold the highest value. Screw you. No, you don't. No, you don't. When you treat people like disposable pieces of a machine. Nah. So now we got to bring it back. Human. Right? We hire people. How do we value them uniquely as people? How do we exalt them, thank them, reinforce them, acknowledge them? pay them appropriately, give them job security or, or income security, right? Give them an opportunity to shine, to grow. That's what we all want. People don't want a lot. Just want to be treated like adults. They want to be treated fairly. Yeah. So that's our, that's our opportunity together. You guys, you have a question for me, please send it to us at support at humanworkplace.com. Love to hear from you and I'll see you guys next time.